the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Pat Williams Power Hour, AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. This is your hour when Orlando Magic Senior Vice President Pat Williams sits down and speaks with authors who have written books on topics of interest and insight for listeners like you. And now, here's your host, Pat Williams. Welcome once again to the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. It's AM 990, FM 101.5, The Word in Orlando. So glad you're with us. So is Pete Paquette. He's the engineer today. He gets us on the air. Andrew Herdliska does the producing. And I want to introduce you to Bruce Hindmarsh. Uh, he is a professor of spiritual theology. Uh, he's at uh, Regent College in Vancouver, Canada. And uh, we're going to talk about his new book, Amazing Grace, The Life of John Newton and the Surprising Story Behind His Song. Bruce, so nice to catch up with you. How are you? Uh, Very well. And you, Pat? Tell me about this book and and where you became interested in John Newton and Amazing Grace. What's the background? Oh, well, I, uh, I actually did my doctoral work at Oxford on John Newton. I'm a historian, and I've been reading, my kids would say I read dead people's mail for a living, and I've been uh, doing this for a long time. But this year is the 250-year anniversary of John Newton's great hymn, his song Amazing Grace, that uh, that people know. And I teamed up with a co-author, um, actually he lives near Oxford, a good friend, Craig Bourlais, and we wanted to tell this story afresh because so many people know the song. A lot of people don't know the story behind the song, and there's so much drama in that story, and it is a story of grace. And we felt like this was the perfect occasion to tell that story for a, a wider audience so that people could know um, um, not amazing John Newton, but amazing grace and see the way in which God's grace transformed um, this person, John Newton. When you open your book, uh, Chapter 1, it's actually called Death, 1725 to 1732. Let's uh, let's start right there and uh, dive into this whole project. Well, it's quite poignant. Um, I think there are terrible things that happened to John Newton, like I'm sure for some of your listeners, they've they, they need grace because of terrible things that have happened to them. And right from the beginning, uh, it's the story. I don't want to give too much away, but it's um, uh, there's a, a, we have a six-year-old boy whose father is a bit severe and overbearing. His father is a sea captain and is away at sea on a long voyage. And his dearly beloved mother dies, and we have a young boy who's left all alone in the world at six years of age. Pat, we're also doing a documentary, a film, and most of the principal filming is done. It'll be out later this year. And it was so moving when they shot this scene because the camera comes up through some candles 
up over the top of a coffin, and you just look into the face of this six-year-old boy who's alone in a church and all alone in the world. And so the first thing, um, that's why the chapter is just called Death, is, um, is that's the first trauma in his life. Um, you know, he loses his, his dearly beloved mother, and he's kind of alone in the world. Uh, next chapter is just simply called Love. Tell us about that, Bruce. Well, John Newton um, was, uh, <laughs> as a teenager, um, you know, reckless love and reckless decisions. He fell deeply in love with a young woman named Mary Catlett, and actually the family were close family friends of his mother, and there's probably something special about that family that he connected with where he didn't connect with his own step-family. But he just, does he ever fall for this woman, mm. this young woman? He's maybe 16 years of age, and there's a love story um, in, the, in John Newton's story. Absolutely, there's a love story. And three years in a row, in December, he visits this family, and he can't tear himself away. And three times in a row, he messes up plans that his father had for his career. He go, he, he's uh, absent without leave from the Navy because he, he, you know, he's supposed to go back to the ship that he's on. And so, I mean, the attachment is, you know, um, he falls in love. And actually, it's a wonderful love story that they end up, this is the woman he marries. And uh, even right to the end of his life, it's, uh, it, it, it's quite a lovely story. And now we move to consequences. What's up? Yes, well, there is a kind of dissent, and um, and actually that's the chapter, uh, the, the 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 next title. Um, but he, um, he, you know, you we know teenagers who make make reckless decisions in their lives and don't think about the consequences. Well, he is out uh, wearing a kind of sailor's you know check shirt, wandering about, us uh, kind of strutting along the Thames, and careless about the fact that. That Britain is about to go go to war with France, and there is legislation that allows the Navy to legally kidnap people and impress them on board naval ships. And this is what happens to him: he is captured by a, a press gang, and he finds himself in the Navy, and he is desperate because they're going to be leaving for five years, a five-year tour of duty in the East Indies. And it's just like this is the worst thing that could happen to him, separating him from his beloved Mary Catlett. And, um, and so he, he has to bear those consequences. His father managed to get him promoted to a kind of junior officer. And, um, but then uh, because uh, he goes AWOL again, and when he's recaptured, he is whipped with a cat of nine tails. He is demoted to a common seaman before the mast. They call this uh, historians call this white man slavery. It was quite a brutal life on board slave ship uh, on board these uh, naval ships. And um, as the ship is leaving the coast of England, the south coast, he looks over the gunwales and contemplates murder suicide. He thinks this is just awful. I might as well kill the captain and kill myself. Mm. And so it's a pretty low point that this eighteen, nineteen-year-old young man reaches, um, dealing with. You know, having to face the consequences of some of his reckless decisions. So we've covered, uh, let me just remind you again, Bruce Hindmarsh is with us. Uh, we're talking about his new book, Amazing Grace, The Life of John Newton. Uh, we've covered death, we've covered love, uh, Bruce, we've covered consequences. Uh, and now the next chapter is simply called Descent. Yes. 
yes. Well, he is in the Navy, and the ship is making its way around the uh, west coast of Africa. And he uh, manages, by kind of accident, to get exchanged out of the Navy for some sailors in the Merchant Marine. There's a merchant ship off the coast of West Africa. And the picture that Craig and I had is as he's descending the ladder of the naval ship, the man of war, onto this Guinea ship, he is literally descending into the belly of the beast, into the slave trade. He's relieved to be out of the Navy. He's desperate to be out of the Navy, but he finds himself uh, on a slave ship. And um, he's the steward of the ship, and for about you know, a few months, it's, it's a sailing along the West Coast, sort of trading for, for, for slaves. And, um, but he, he is descending into a darker world. And um, there's a person on that ship who's going to set up a, um, they call them factories, but a kind of um, trading post on the coast of Africa, a new trading post to collect slaves. And Newton, again, in, without deliberating, without thinking about his actions, just says, well, I'll go with you and I'll be a kind of apprentice to you. And um, so this little tiny island off the coast of Sierra Leone, Plantain Island, he finds himself on this island with a new kind of master or um, apprentice to this, this fellow. And, um, but that's where things uh, go terribly wrong. He, um, he gets, I presume it's malaria, a kind of tropical fever, a near-death uh, kind of illness, and he loses the trust of his master and his master's powerful black mistress. Her name is P.I., and he finds himself abused, he finds himself uh, enslaved in chains. There's sort of near starvation at one point, and it's only the other slaves who kind of have pity on him. And uh, just to anticipate how where you're going, the next chapter is called Breaking, yes. because we kind of na- narrate how he reached a kind of breaking point. And again, you know, for some of your listeners, you know, they may have, you know, partly because of things that happened to them, partly because of their own decisions, you know, some of us know what it is to reach a kind of breaking point. Well, this is quite a low point for him. He, uh, he, he should have died unloved, far from home, abused, and in chains. It's quite a low point. He's maybe early 20s at this point, and, um, and we try to let the reader feel what it was like to be John Newton at that point and be so desperate. Uh, let's uh, keep rolling. This is fascinating. Um... The next topic is breaking, followed by storm. Uh, take those two in one bite. Right. So he reaches this kind of breaking point um, mm-hmm. in, uh, on the west coast of Africa where he is, um, he is enslaved. He manages to get out of that and, and, and work with another, um, you know, at another kind of trading post that is collecting slaves where he, he, he gets out of the, the, the sort of desperateness of that situation where he is abused. And, but his father is looking out for him. Um, notwithstanding that his father was remote and severe, his father has asked captains who are coming to West Africa to look out for his son. And there is a, a ship, Captain Anthony Gother. The ship is called the Greyhound. They're not trading slaves. They're trading, you know, for cargo and so on, and for other products from Africa. And Captain Gother asks, is there anybody around here named John Newton? And they say, oh, yes, here he is. 
And he says, you know, I've come to rescue you, to bring you back to England. And, um, and at first John Newton says, well, no, I'm not sure I want to go. Uh, like, things are okay here. And so Captain Gother lies to him and says, well, there's been a huge amount of money that's been left to you. And, um, and he bribes him sort of back onto the boat, onto the ship. And the ship makes a long voyage down the coast of Africa into equatorial waters, and then a huge arcing um, um, a voyage back to, toward Ireland uh, with the trade winds and the currents. They go uh, skirting the coast of Brazil, up West Indies, uh, coast of Newfoundland, and they're making their way across the North Atlantic in 1748. And in March uh, 1748, uh, uh, Newton is awakened in the middle of the night. There's a North Atlantic storm that is threatening to tear the ship apart. And a man just before him going up um, you know, from the hold onto the deck is swept overboard by a rogue wave. Mm. And it's desperate. And they are, as my co-author Craig says, it's like this is made for television, that this scene is unbelievable in terms of the, the, the storm that they're in, tearing timbers uh, off the ship. The, the sails are ragged. They are pumping. They are desperate to survive. And in the midst of this, Newton says, if this will not do, if we're not going to make it, the Lord have mercy. And then all of a sudden he goes, who am I to ask God for mercy? He had rejected his childhood faith. He had walked away from all of that. He had developed a hard heart, and his mind, he'd become more sort of agnostic, atheist, and and a course of sinfulness. He knew, how could there be mercy for someone like me? Through the night, as he's piloting the ship, as he's manning the pumps, he's wondering, could there be grace for me? And it's like his conscience all of a sudden was awakened. He survived the storm. And they have a ship out of repair, and it's still not clear that they're going to survive because the ship is almost dead in the water. Uh, but the ship kind of limped its way back to port in Low Swilly in, in Ireland. And he says at that point in 18th century language, I was no longer an infidel. In other words, he sort of came to believe that Christianity was true again, and he knew he had to try to live up to it. But within a year, on a new voyage back in West Africa, actually back on the same island where he had been enslaved. He's malarial. He has a fever. He realizes, he said, he had returned like a dog to its vomit. Mm. And he had returned again to his same. And it wasn't a matter of making resolves anymore. And he, he, he crawled to an isolated spot on the island, and he said, Lord, I need you to do for me what I can't do for myself. Jesus Christ, I need your forgiveness. I need your atonement. I, I durst make no more resolves, he said. It's not about trying harder. I need to be forgiven. And this is the point, he said, at which it's like his health, his fever left him. He began to recover physically, and he said he felt like the power of sin, the, 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 the sinful chains began to be broken. Bruce, Hein- Bruce Heinmarsh yeah. is our guest Bruce, uh, we got to take a break, and when we come back, yeah. uh, I want you to get into the next uh, two fascinating chapters about John Newton. One is simply about, is called Slaves, the other is called Shackles. Bruce Hindmarsh, yeah. our guest, he's in Vancouver, British Columbia, and we're talking about his book, Amazing Grace, 
The Life of John Newton and the Surprising Story Behind His Song. We will be right back. Stay with us. More of the Pat Williams Hour in just a moment. AM 990 and FM 101.5. The Word. You're listening to the Pat Williams Power Hour, AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. Now, here's Pat. My guest is Bruce Heinmarsh, author of Amazing Grace. Uh, we're, we're deeply embedded in the life and the story of John Newton. And, and Bruce, as I mentioned before the break, slaves and shackles. Tell us more. Yeah. In a way, this is the most um, uncomfortable part of the story, Pat. And we tell the story from Newton's point of view. We give the reader a front row seat, like watching a film or going to live theater. We don't pause to comment or to do a lot of analysis. So he has begun, he has turned to Christ, but he himself would look back and say, it wasn't like Damascus Road, like the light just shone from above and he was instantly transformed. He said it was more like, you know, a bit of twilight, the dawning of the day, the light gradually dawns, and he gradually sees more and more of the truth. And so the uncomfortable part here is that he um, he makes a series of voyages in the slave trade as first mate and then as captain of a slave ship. And, um, and the first voyage he makes as a first mate, the captain, a man named Richard Jackson, is quite a brutal, brutal slave trader. And we let the reader feel what it was like on the slave ship, feel what it was like for these enslaved Africans, um, forced migration, uh, crowded together, the brutal conditions of the Middle Passage, and um, and uh, while while still telling the story of John Newton, and then the chapter called Shackles, 1750 to 1754, is when John Newton himself was um, was a captain of a slave ship. And he said, you know, he tried to use as little force as he could to maintain the safety of the ship, but he found it unpleasant to be in the occupation of the jailer and so on. And there's ways that, you know, he um, tried to preserve the lives of the slaves and the crew as best he could, but he was a slave captain at the same time that he's, you know, in the quarterdeck writing in his spiritual diary and writing love letters to his wife, and not yet seeing the profound inconsistency of this. We want the reader to feel that. We want the reader to think, oh my goodness, where is it that I could be self-deceived? The slave trade was so widely accepted at this point that he still didn't really see. And there's a later chapter called Reckoning, where he does come to reckon with this. But for the uh, but for that chapter, chapter 8 about shackles, we, we tell that story and we, we let the reader see what's happening in Newton's life, what's happening in the lives of these enslaved Africans, until finally uh, more light is dawning. And finally, in 1754, he has a seizure. And it's the only time it happened. I wonder if, sometimes if it was psychosomatic, that he really didn't want to go back and, for another voyage. And he didn't want to leave Mary Catlett, who, to whom he was now married. But he had a seizure and uh, he left the slave trade, and then for about 10 years, he works in the customs office in Liverpool, and, uh, and um, he's left the slave trade, and he begins to um, teach himself um, theology. He learns Hebrew, he learns Greek, he uh, gets involved in the evangelical awakening 
and he meets great preachers like Wesley and Whitfield, and he begins as a lay person preaching and sharing his faith, wanting other people to discover the grace of God and the forgiveness that he had experienced. And he begins to wonder, maybe I could be a minister. Mm. Maybe I could be a pastor and share with other people the good news that I have discovered. And so, um, so that's the path. And uh, by, he's left the slave trade in 1754. He's begun to study. He's sort of self-taught as a layperson. And, uh, and he's, he's asking God, could I now share with others the grace that I myself have received? It's a big turning point. Now, we dive into part two, and I want you to tackle the, these next two chapters. One is called Freedom, and one is called Reckoning. Uh, explain yeah. that. Explain that to us, Bruce. Yeah. Well, I think there is a kind of freedom that he begins to, you know, I run in the path of your commands, for you have set my heart free. He he's able to be a minister. He sees revival. He's it's a small market town in England, perhaps two thousand people. He is ordained. He's a pastor. He is a powerful preacher. He becomes a wise uh, spiritual counselor. He counsels people through letters. He becomes a writer. He writes his autobiography. And he is really genuinely operating um, out of God's grace, offering God's grace to people. Every week alongside his sermon, he's writing a hymn to go with the sermon. He becomes a uh, significant hymn writer. And we get a picture in these chapters of his ministry, of his marriage, of his friendships, He's a friend of the poet William Cooper, who has, uh, is a neighbor, and they write hymns together. And then in, um, in, in the midst of this ministry in this small town, writing hymns, at the uh, end of the year in 1772, he's coming to the end of his diary, uh, a, a volume of his diary. It's the next year, it's a, you know, the next day, it's a Friday, it's New Year's Day, they're going to have a church service on New Year's Day where they can look back and they can look forward. And he thinks, what do I write? I need to write a sermon. I need to write a hymn. And that's the night that he turns to First Chronicles 17, 16, and 17, where David, um, uh, King David in the Old Testament, uh, uh, the prophet Nathan says, you're not going to build God's temple, uh, but God's going to... You're not going to build God's house, but God's going to build your house. And David... David says, uh, Who am I, Lord God? What is my family that you have brought me this far? And that this were not enough, you have spoken of the future of the house of your servant. King David says, Grace has brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. And Newton thinks, Oh, this is perfect for New Year's Day. He writes a sermon, and the hymn that goes with the sermon is the hymn Amazing Grace. Mm. And it's a hymn of looking back on how grace has brought us all this way, and how grace will grace will be there right to the end. It will take us home, and that's when um, when that uh, great hymn is first sung. It's uh, you know he presents his hymn in the church. We tell that story, and we tell more of the poignant story of William Cooper, who suffered with his friend and co sort of hymn writer, who suffered with uh, mental illness and um, and suicidal tendencies and how Newton cared for him in the midst of all this going on. And then, um, and then the chapter called uh, Reckoning is both William Cooper and uh, Newton 
come to be involved in the growing abolition movement. And it's really in the 1780s that various people in Britain kind of awaken, and public sentiment awakens to the cruelty, the atrocity, the inhumanity of, um, of the slave trade, of chattel slavery, of white over black slavery. And it's, it's in this period that, uh, that Newton himself becomes... Um, there are signs and there's, there's some good scholarship that shows that Newton was already developing anti-slavery sentiment very early after leaving the slave trade, and that he was even privately uh, possibly giving um, information, first-hand accounts, to help Anthony Benezet and the Quakers that were beginning to um, protest against the slave trade. But where he publicly comes out against the slave trade is in the 1780s. He's moved to London. He's a pastor in London. He's moving in these metropolitan circles. He's a friend of William Wilberforce. and counsels Wilberforce to stay in politics and helps him in his crusade. But my goodness, Pat, when he comes out and reckons with his past, does he ever uh, come out against the slave trade? He makes a public confession. He writes one of the most important pieces of sort of popular um, literature against the slave trade, giving details. He gives evidence to the Privy Council. He's a trusted testimony. He gives evidence to the Select House Committee, and he seeks to destroy this system of which he had been a part. But one of the poignant things for me is to watch just his own conscience as he begins to realize what he had done in his 20s. You know, he wrote to one of the other abolitionists, he said, um, he said, I need to walk softly all my days. He said, I hope I have been forgiven, but I need to walk softly all my days, knowing what I have been and what I have done. Wow. And, uh, you know, and he, um, he, on his own printed copy of the Minutes, of the testimony that he gave to the House of Commons, he wrote, he said, um, he said, I, I dare not make any apology for speaking publicly against this vile trade. He said, if I were to keep silent, my conscience would speak loudly, knowing what I know. Nor could I expect a blessing upon my ministry were I to speak of the sufferings of Jesus till I was hoarse. Bruce Hindmarsh has been our guest. The book, Amazing Grace, The Life of John Newton and the Surprising Story Behind His Song. We've got more after this on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. Stay with us. It's AM 990 and FM 101.5. The word in Orlando. We'll be right back. More of the Pat Williams Hour in just a moment. AM 990 and FM 101.5. The word. You're listening to the Pat Williams Power Hour, AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. Now, here's Pat. Well, I want to welcome an old friend, Robert Wolgamuth, uh, a native, really, of Central Florida. He lives in Michigan now. Former president of Thomas Nelson Publishers. His new book is out, Finish Line, Dispelling Fear, Finding Peace, and Preparing for the End of Your Life. Robert, first of all, welcome to your old hometown of Orlando. It's uh, sure, oh. sure nice to catch up with you. Actually, right now, I wish I were there. I wish we weren't doing this virtually. I wish I were there. I miss Central Florida in so many ways, especially our dear friends. We got 17 years with them, and it was incredible. Robert, uh, why this book? 
Well, my last book was called Gun Lap, which was encouraging uh, the running of the last lap of your of your life's race. Um, and then this time, it's finish line. It's the straightaway. It's crossing the line, breaking the tape. And, you know, the scripture makes it very clear that we are all going to die. I know that's not necessarily a pleasant thing to hear, but it's the truth. And we all know that it's true. And the older we get, the more we realize how true it is. Our bodies begin to fail. Our minds begin to fail. And we begin to understand that this is really true, that we are on the final straightaway headed to the finish line. The whole point of the book, though, is for it to be an encouragement to men and women both who, who know for sure that they are on the final straightaway headed for the finish line. Robert, uh, you open the book in your first chapter, and there are 10 of them, dead, not dead. What's that mean? What's that <laughs> yeah. mean? Well, it was, it was originally called yucky, not yucky. And my editor said, that sounds like you're talking to a sophomore high school. And I get that. So we changed it to dead, not dead. But even though I just said that we're all going to die, the, the story of Lazarus and Jesus coming to Bethany after Lazarus was dead, remember the shortest verse in the Bible, John eleven thirty five. Jesus wept. He came to the grave of his friend, and people were mourning and weeping. And then, of course, he invited Lazarus to come out of the grave. But the conversation that Jesus had with Martha right before that, uh, he challenges her with the fact that her brother is dead. But she responds with, yes, I understand that at the resurrection, we will all rise again. So the truth is that we are all going to die, but because of Christ, because of knowing him, having faith in him, receiving his salvation, we aren't going to die ever. That's dead, not dead. Then you move to this topic. Spoiler alert, heaven can be yours. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's right. So who better than Randy Alcorn to give an endorsement? In fact, when I asked him, and we've been friends for many years, uh, Randy, of course, wrote the international classic book called Heaven. So I said, Randy, I'm, I only want one endorsement on this book, and it's yours. And he said, I would love to do that. So the back of the book is Randy Alcorn's endorsement. And in the same way that the Bible promises that we're all going to die, they also the Bible also talks about the fact that heaven is real, and those who know Jesus as Savior will spend the rest of eternity, just consider that, the rest of eternity in heaven. So you and I can embrace that, Pat. We know that that is true. God's Word says it. So heaven can be yours. And I don't, I don't want to surprise the reader. This is a spoiler alert. Heaven really can be yours. Finish line lines. That's the topic uh, number three. Robert, fill us in. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Okay, so... This is, this is a sobering thing. I mean, I think a lot about this. I mean, I'm 75. I was 75 yesterday. I know it'll take me a while to catch up to you, Pat Williams. But <laughs> so 30%, now think about this, 30% of us will die suddenly. In fact, in the book, I say, for some men, their final words will be, hey, you guys, watch this. So, But 30% of us will die suddenly. My... My wife Nancy's daddy was on the tennis court 
he was 59 years old, and he threw the ball up to serve it and dropped dead. He was dead before he hit the pavement. So 30, 30% of us will die like that, but 70% of us will have an, ex, an exit ramp. And I talk about my late wife, Bobby, who had a 30-month exit ramp. So that gave us a chance to say goodbye and to gather friends together. Bobby said, the only thing I really care about is that I get a chance to use this platform to introduce people to the Savior. So finish line lines, I have some fun with that. Uh, the final things, uh, Buddy Rich, who was a famous drummer, um, he was on his really deathbed, and somebody said to him, do you have any final words? And he said, yes, I hate country music. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, it, you know, it's fun. But anyway, those that's finish line lines, things that people say before they die. Now let's move on. Two finish line guys in the Bible. I spent some time with the Apostle Peter um, and also Abraham. Um, the scripture says he died uh, an old man, a good old man, and he was surrounded by community, by his friends. So, what better thing to do, first of all, to be called good, that your life was good? That, that sounds kind of like a benign word. I mean, people say fantastic, awesome, whatever. But they also say good as in, man, this is the good life. Well, the scripture says that Abraham died a good old man. Mm. And I mentioned yesterday was my 75th birthday. And if, I mean, if you talk to an 18-year-old Robert and say, let's talk about 75 years old, I would say, that is an old man. So I'm grateful for these years, and I want to finish well. I want those who follow after me to say, Robert lived a good life, and he was gathered to his friends. What is this chapter about, Robert? Temple care. Yeah, this is really fun. Um, the, the Scripture talks about your, your body as a temple, right? The temple of the Holy Spirit. So I talk about your temple or your house. Your building is like a house. Your, your body is like a house. So I talk about taking care of your body. Um, I pay tribute to my primary care physician here in uh, southwest Michigan, and, and I encourage readers to have a doctor on speed call or speed dial. So your, your doctor takes good care of your body, but then also a pastor who takes good care of your temple. So you've got both a physical body that is a, a house that needs maintenance, and your body's also a temple. So you need a sexton. You need a pastor to, to help you take good care of the temple. You've got a house and a temple. That's what I talk about. What does nuts and bolts mean? All right, so 30% of the people who are hearing my voice, only 30%, have a will. 70%, just consider this, Pat, 70% of the people listening right now to my voice and to yours, when they die, the state, the probate court will determine what happens to your assets. So that chapter talks about taking care of the paperwork. 
uh, a will, uh, an estate plan, having having say in what happens to you, I mean, to your assets, to your things. You you may say, well, I don't have that much. Oh, you have a lot more than you think you do. So I'm helping the reader walk through what they need to do between now and the time that they die to take care of the paperwork in their lives. Why do you think that's so hard for people to do? We, we all think we're immortal. We think death happens to other people. So I know you knew Zig Ziglar. I know he was a good friend of yours. When you go to one of Zig's deals, he would say, I know you, you, you know, you need to do this. You need to do that. And you, you say to yourself, I'll do that when I get around to it. Have you ever heard him say that? Oh yeah. And then he'd pass out these, these poker chips and printed on the poker chips was the word to it. T U I T. And he, and he passed them out to everybody. And he said, now you've got around to it. Now you can't say, I'll get it done when I get around to it. You've got around to it now. Well, we're, we're, you know, procrastination is contagious and we all put stuff off that we should do now, whether it's cleaning the garage or getting a physical or taking care of the kinds of things I'm talking about right, right now. So that's, that's the nuts and bolts chapter. It's very important. Now I want you to talk about topic number seven. <clears throat> and by the way, uh, our guest is Robert Wolgamuth, uh, who spent many years here in Central Florida. His new book is out, Finish Line, Dispelling Fear, Finding Peace, and Preparing for the End of Your Life. Robert, this chapter, Saying Grace, what's that mean? Oh, yeah, I love this. So I was at the DFW airport, which is actually the 51st state in the Union. The thing is so massive. <laughs> and, and I sneezed. I was on that one of that little tram, right, going from Terminal A to Terminal B, and I sneezed. And there was a guy standing close by. I put my hand over my mouth. Don't worry. And he said, bless you. And I thought, isn't that interesting? This total stranger is pronouncing a blessing on me. He doesn't know me. I don't know him. Well, I talk about the blessing that people say, usually, before a meal, saying grace, right? So this chapter, I encourage readers, to bless, while they're alive, to bless the people in their lives. So in that chapter... I have printed a blessing for each of my grandchildren. And you'll love this because they received their copies, let's see, uh, two days ago. I sent them copies, and I underlined, I mean, I, I highlighted the, the prayer, the blessings that I'm praying over them. They, they were able to read it. So I'm, I'm alive. I'm very much alive, and they are as well. But I wanted to pronounce a blessing on my grandchildren. And I encourage readers to do the same. There will be a time that you won't be able to bless your children or your grandchildren. So I put it right there in black and white to help the reader just get an idea of what I'm talking about, about blessing your children, saying grace. Fascinating. And now, Robert, we arrive at a question mark. Who will, uh, be, who will be your pallbearers? Ooh. What do you think? Uh, yeah, there you go. See, that's right. They need to be strong enough to carry the box, but know where to put it. So, <clears throat> so um, because you're in Central Florida, I talk about my late wife's funeral at First Presbyterian Church in 2014, November of 2014. Um, and I encourage readers to plan their funeral. 
what a shame if you were to die and your family and friends would gather and say, what would Robert want? Like, where would he want the funeral to be? Who would he want to speak? Does he want music? Does he want hymns? What would they be? They will never have, my children will never have to ask the question after I die. I wonder what Robert would want for this service. So in the same way, we're talking about the nuts and bolts things and preparing a will and so forth. I encourage the reader literally to plan your funeral. Now, that's not meant to restrict or constrict your loved ones, your survivors, but it is intended to give them an answer to the question, I wonder what Robert would want for his funeral. It's a, it's a huge gift to them. It's not a gift to you. It's a gift to them. So they won't have to ask the question, I, want, I wonder what Robert would want for this service. So that's in that chapter. Now, Robert, I want you to talk about no more secrets. What's going on? Oh, man. Um, I really wondered how specific to be in this chapter, Pat. And I won't say his name now, but in the chapter, I actually mentioned a man who is very, very well known around the world, not just among Christians, but among many people. In fact, I hosted this man at First Presbyterian Church in Orlando. Uh, He spent two days. We had Q&A. He spoke. It was incredible. Well, he was a very close friend. In fact, he was converted under my daddy's ministry when my dad was in India, and this man was 17 years old, and he received Christ as his Savior. He became worldwide, worldwide known as an apologist and a brilliant man, and he was a brilliant man. When he died, his wife called me. We prayed on the phone. And by the way, I've spoke, I spoke with this man many times around the world. Anyway, so I'm talking to his wife. My friend is dead. Then within the next several weeks and months, his family, his colleagues began to uncover stuff that revealed that there was a part of this man's life that nobody knew about except him and God. And so what I do, Pat, is I encourage readers to pretend that they're gone, they're dead, and their family, their loved ones, are going through their stuff. They're reading emails, they're reading letters, they're reading journals. Robert, hold your thought. We've got to take a break. We'll be right back. Robert Wolgamuth is our guest. He's in Michigan. The book, Finish Line. The show, the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. It's AM 990 and FM 101.5. The Word in Orlando. We'll be right back. More of the Pat Williams Hour in just a moment. AM 990 and FM 101.5. The Word. You're listening to the Pat Williams Power Hour. AM 990 and FM 101.5. The Word. Now, here's Pat. Robert Wolgamuth, best-selling author, is our guest. Wolgamuth. Wolgamuth. The book finish line. Robert, we interrupted you in the middle of a key thought, so pick it up right where we left. Yeah, Yeah. the the chapter that we're talking about, Pat, is called No More Secrets. Yes. And it's about living life as an open book. In fact, um, just a few days ago, I retired from my business. I sold it to my colleagues, and then I officially retired, turning 75. I hired two young men in 2005. 
I'm, I'm not boasting. This is a true story. I'll tell you why I'm telling it. So they came into my office. They were my first. They were my only full time. I, I, this business I started and at this time was running by myself. So I hired these two guys. I'm sitting in my office. I'm sitting at my at my desk, and I say to them, "There is nothing in these drawers." And I pointed to my computer. There is nothing on this computer that you guys don't have full access to. There, there are no secrets in there. Now, that could sound admirable to some people. They say, "Wow." How cool of you being that open. The truth is, I know how broken and simple I am. And if I'm saying to men, my colleagues, you you are welcome to access anything, knowing that, that that's true, that, that, is, that they will be able to access anything, helps me to be sure that I'm not holding any secrets, that there's nothing that they could find that would bring shame to Christ. And so this chapter, I mean, it's a tragic story. It's a story you know very well without me saying this man's name. But if you and I were able to talk to him, um, you know, a year before he died, I would ask him this question. Is there anything you're hiding that your family needs to know now before you die? So you can explain it or you can ask their forgiveness. Mm. Don't wait. The truth is they're going to go through your stuff. Your life will be an open book after you're done, after you're dead. So why not take care of that before you're dead? So as I said, you can ask forgiveness. You can explain things that seem unexplainable. Don't Your secrets will be revealed after you're gone. That's a guarantee. So take care of it before you die. Wow, that's heavy. Uh, yeah, it's true. Chapter 10, simply called Dying. Well... The opening story in the book is about my late wife, Bobby. We were married for almost 45 years. Um, 30 months of fighting ovarian cancer. Uh, We were at the Arnold Palmer Group downtown, where you live. We love the people there. They did such a great job of taking care of my late wife. Um, But watching Bobby die removed my fear of death. Now, am I, am I afraid of how I'm going to die? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it could be painful and hard, but the, the whole idea, Pat, of death absolutely was stricken for me as I watched this woman dying with grace. She never complained. I know people, people hear me say that and go, come on. No, she didn't. And she went through a clinical trial that was absolutely horrendous. I've got pictures of her with a knitted cap on her bald head and a huge smile on her face, even though she was going through this horrendous clinical trial. So I talk about the fact that dying is real. We've already talked about that, but that dying is real, that you are going to die. Listen to me. You are going to die. And what's going to happen to the people who you love? Uh, What's going to happen to your soul? What will eternity look like? Um, In fact, I talk about ready golf. That's in the epilogue. And I know that you know sports so well, and I know that you know what ready golf is. Like you're on a crowded municipal course, right? And and usually, because it's a gentleman's game, you wait until it's your turn to hit your ball. But in ready golf, you hit the ball when you get there. And the truth is that you need to be ready for that. In fact, I tell the story, you know this so well, of Payne Stewart's funeral at First Baptist Church. and. Paul Azinger, 
who delivered the eulogy. I had the privilege of writing that for Paul. And the whole idea there, in fact, they, you, I'm sure you remember this, they delayed a tournament and flew from Houston, I think, every PGA pro to this service. And the challenge that Paul gave to these men who were sitting there is, are you ready? Are you ready? You're going to die. Are you ready? In fact, I, w- I was at the Bay Hill maybe two years after that, and I bought some stuff at the merch tent. And the guy that handed me the, my, my bag with the, the shirt in it had a WWJD bracelet on. Remember those? Oh, yes. Oh, I yes. said, man, that is great. I love that. He said, I've been wearing this since Payne Stewart's funeral because we passed them out at the end of the funeral. He said, I received Jesus as my Savior as the result of Paul Azinger's message. And I looked him square in the eye, and I said, the Lord gave me the chance to actually write that for Paul. And he came around from behind the cash register, and we stood there and embraced my brother in Christ as a result of the death of Payne Stewart. How amazing is that? That's powerful, Robert. At the very end of your book... <clears throat> there's a little <clears throat> there's a little piece that you put in there and that's not all four pages yeah <laughs> yeah yeah okay so there was a man who my white wife Nancy loved and he died and so like a lot of stories that you know people are gathered around uh, his hospital bed and they know that Papa is dying. And so they, they're, you know, singing hymns and stuff. And then they realize that he is actually stepping into eternity. And instead of like being somber and sad and whatever, they celebrate. And so they're, they're shouting, go Papa, go. This is Dr. Heinsohn. I mean, he, he was iconic. He, Ed Heinsohn was a professor at Liberty for yes. many years. Yes, I knew Ed. And I did you? Oh, wow. So just imagine, Pat, this guy is about to die. He's in the hospital. And don't you know, at the somber moment, and the hospital staff are accustomed to that. In this particular hospital room, it was like they were cheering. They were cheering their dad and their grandfather across the finish line. I That... When I, when I read that story, when I heard about that, Christy, uh, his daughter, actually said this at the funeral. And I thought, what a cool thing. I talk about uh, a young man who, uh, on a wheelchair, went 26,000 miles. Um, I talk about that in an early chapter. He, he's Canadian. So he, he's going to the stadium on a wheelchair, 50,000 people screaming and yelling. That's, that's the end, man. That is the finish line. That's what this is going to be like. And, uh, you know, my hope, my hope is that people who read this book will understand how important it is at this point in their life before their death that they get ready to cross this finish line. In, in that, the writing of this book would be 100% worth the effort that I put into it. So that's my hope, man. That's my prayer. Robert, I'm going to uh, take over the last minute and a half here and tell you a little story. Uh, it was uh, late summer 1979. My phone rang. I was in Philly, GM of the 76ers then. And the call came and said, Art DeMoss, your friend, uh, has just died on the tennis court. 
And wow. uh, so um, we, we, I, I quick, wow. quickly got in the car, got a babysitter, uh, drove over on the other side of Philadelphia to the DeMoss's house. And, um, and, and there was your wife, young Nancy DeMoss. I guess she was 21. She was at Liberty University. 21. Had, had, had quickly come back. And uh, we gave her a hug. And, and I said, Nancy, Nancy, how are you doing? And she said, well, we're pretty rejoicing. Oh. She, said, we're, 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 she said, we're pretty rejoicing. The next morning at church, uh, Mother Nancy escorted all the DeMoss children into church Sunday morning. And the song they were playing when they walked in was, It Is Well With My Soul. Well, the funeral uh, was later that week at that at that same church, and we went to the funeral. Uh, Bill Bright Campus Crusade was there, and, and the place was full. And Bill Bright said, "How many people are here today who, who who came to Christ through the ministry of Art DeMoss?" And 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 uh, uh, Robert, I'm telling you, half the half the room went went up with hands. And and so I've never forgotten that uh, Nancy's father was a dear friend and a and a great great soul winner. There was nobody quite like him. He was. Anyway, folks, nobody like him. Robert Wolgamuth, our guest. The book finish line. Thanks for joining us here on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. Have a wonderful week ahead. We will see you next weekend right here at AM nine ninety and FM one hundred one point five. The Word in Orlando. God bless. Thank you for joining us for this week's edition of the Pat Williams Power Hour. Join us again next week at this time, where faith comes by hearing. AM 990 and FM 101.5. The Word. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.